It's the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Jackson Gatlin here, host of the Monday edition Locked On NBA podcast. Every Monday, I cover the three biggest stories in the NBA with the local experts from Locked On. It's an awesome recap of the weekend of the NBA and a look at what's ahead. Mark your calendars on Monday to join me for Locked On NBA podcast, available on YouTube and wherever you get your podcasts. talk to you about really like I said to you uh before we started that I, I'm really a fan of everything that you've done as far as the the sports media game is concerned like I feel like there was you know everybody you read paper and you read like these stories about what's going on in between the lines and then what we've come to realize is that you know people have a much more interest in you know there's things that revolve around sports but that happen outside of the lines um, how did you like become like a, a kind of an innovator of of you know covering different aspects of sports or things adjacent to sports and and really kind of set the trend for where sports blogging has gone? I mean, I think you're giving me way too much credit. I think, but but thank you. But I think a lot of people sort of had similar interests, maybe, and just didn't have an outlet to um to explore them. And it just happened that the post was going hard into the internet era and gave me this sort of freedom to do whatever I wanted with a Washington sports blog. Or really, I could have made it national if I wanted to, but I just sort of decided to pursue what I was interested in, which was going to events and practices and, um, you know, press conferences and stuff like that and, and just trying to find, I guess, trying to find stuff that people would be interested in in like a non-newspaper style, like just a little bit more informal and a little bit more trying to take readers with me, I guess. It all started from when I went to the Winter Olympics right before I started the blog, and I was just trying to, I mean, I used to always tell people, I was trying to do the equivalent of like emailing my friends what it was like, except I was just writing it in blog software. It was also important, I think, that I started, you know, right before Twitter got really big, and I think a lot of what Twitter is now is sort of taking the place of original blogging because it's so easy to 
describe things and, and get pictures and videos out to people who aren't at events. But back then it was like, I, this is my way of trying to take readers with me. So I, I just happened to be, I think, lucky that the Post was willing to set me loose to do whatever I wanted. And obviously at the time there were a lot of really interesting characters in D.C. sports that people were interested in that helped um, – keep the thing kind of vital and interesting, I guess. But I think I was really just lucky to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of life is about people ending up at the right place at the right time. But I mean, you, you also have to have the, the foresight and the, the, the drive to actually go out and, you know, accomplish those goals. And, and when you talk about some of the characters that were in D.C. sports, um, I know uh, I, I actually had a conversation with Dave McMiniman, uh, I believe that was about two seasons ago. And he explained to me how, you know, he was the, the uh, quote-unquote ghost writer for yeah. the uh, popular Gilbert Arenas blog uh, back in the day. But, you know, uh, Dave definitely mentioned that he used to uh, be in communication with you and just letting him know, you know, different things, different when, when, when there was going to be a blog post or, you know, you, you all were, were collaborating on that and helping make, uh, you know, Gilbert's player blog uh, popular. And I will definitely give him credit as, you know, being one of the, the first players to kind of uh, uh, get into this space as far as um, uh, uh, skipping over the journalist as a, as a medium and just going direct to the consumer. So uh, t- just talk about what was it like covering uh, Gilbert and, and, you know, dealing with David McMenamin at the time and just, just how, he like, like you said, right place at the right time. But, you know, these are all, you know, Dave is a great journalist right now. And, you know, Gilbert is, is Gilbert, and Gil- but Gilbert was, you know, one of the most entertaining figures in sports. Can you talk about that time a little bit? Yeah, well, Dave, I mean, Dave is really talented, and I think we didn't really totally realize at the time until later, but I think a big part of the success of that whole operation was because Dave had, like, a really good sense of the kind of topics to lead Gilbert to and an entertaining way to bring them to people. And Gilbert, I don't know, I have mixed feelings about him now because some of the stuff he does now just doesn't appeal to me. I don't find it funny, and I don't find it clever or amusing or any of the things I used to find him. But at the time, it felt like he was fresh and, and kind of different, and it felt like, I mean, I think it felt like there was like an energy about sports on the internet in Washington, and he was like a part of that, and, you know, the post setting me free, and then the fact that Jamie Matram, who had such an important role in like the early world of sports blogging, but he was based in Washington and interested in Washington sports, and you know, a bunch of people from Deadspin were based down here. So it felt like there was kind of already like an energy about um, writing about sports on the Internet in Washington. And then Gilbert, I mean, it was such a short period of time, but for a very short period of time, it felt like he was in the perfect place, kind of doing the perfect thing, being like really interesting and wacky and open um, while also being one of the best players in the NBA. I mean, maybe. It felt like he was at the time for a couple months or a couple weeks or anything. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that that, that string of games when he was hitting game winners going toe-to-toe right. with Kobe, you know, 60-point games. I mean, Gilbert Arenas was statistically, you know, one of the best players in the NBA at the time. And, you know, and there there are Wizards statisticians out there. Shout-out to my guy Kevin Broom from SB Nation who thinks that, you know, Gilbert statistically reached a peak that not even John Wall was able to reach. So, you know, Gilbert Gilbert was a force to be reckoned with on the court, and I think that that's what definitely gave a lot of his antics off of the court a little bit more credence than it would have normally. But, Absolutely. you know, I mean, Gilbert was fresh and different. And I, I tend to agree with you, agree with you uh, Dan, that, you know, some of his stuff right now, his comedy is very crass. 
and, and you know, just a little over the top. And I, I, I'm I'm really not a fan of a lot of the things that he does right now, but I do still check out his work and his podcast, and I think that you know he has a unique perspective uh, that where you know he's unlike other players where you know they're trying to you know say the right things and because you know they want to get you know television gigs or you know want to be in sports media. I feel like Gilbert, you know, the stuff that he's doing, he's doing it because that's really what he feels from his heart. He's not doing it for, you know, promotion or, or anything like that. So, you know, it, you know, more respect and power to uh, him. I agree I agree with you, but, like, also at the time, it was, like, before, you know, uninterrupted and before the Players' Tribune and all of those kind of slickly produced things. And he his was, like, it always just felt, like, a little bit less produced and a little bit more like this kind of crazy dude opening himself up to the world. But also there, it just wasn't like, like now every athlete has a Twitter account and probably a million other ways of getting, you know, sponsored content out and whatever. It just felt a little bit more wild west. Like for me too, like I didn't have an editor back then. I was just like literally whatever I wanted to write, I would type it on the site and then press publish and it would go straight to the internet. Like, I mean, I work at the Postal. I'm an editor now and we would never let anyone do that anymore. It's just, <laughs> it's just different. And so, I think there was a lot of kind of untamed stuff going on, and a lot of it happened to be going on in D.C. Yeah, I mean, you know, D.C. is uh, it, it's a town where it just seems to be a lot of things always going on with players on the court with, you know, managerial uh, disputes or, you know, players going out too much off of the court. There's always just seems to be a lot going on. Um, but I feel like the energy is getting way more positive uh, at the epicenter of D.C. sports right now. And when we talk about D.C. sports, we have to talk about, you know, the, the Nationals uh, who had the, the, you know, I would say one of the biggest wins in, uh, in, DC, in recent D.C. sports memory, especially because of the way that it happened. You know, as a Nats fan, like, I felt like the game was probably over. But then, you know, the bases get loaded and, you know, Juan Soto comes up and he, he delivers a, a, a great single. And, you know, the, his hard base run and the team, they were in the right place at the right time. But how do you feel – the, the the nationals uh, being the, the I guess the focal point of DC media right now and how, how do you feel about the the competition that's going on between I guess the the nationals uh, coverage and uh, the the Washington Mystics coverage because they're also in the WNBA finals right now both teams playing in Southeast DC and I, I wanted to talk to you about a tweet that you had earlier where you referenced uh, something that Tony Kornheiser said about how it was uh, insane that the, the Post put that strip of the Mystics' uh, playoff coverage uh, on the main page. The, the, you know, the A1 story. But, you know, it seems to be this, uh, I don't know, this, this, this kind of uh, disdain for uh, uh, WNBA getting uh, front page or proper coverage. How, how do you feel about that whole situation? Yeah, well, someone someone tweeted at me and told me that Tony was – railing about our sports section. So I listened to it. It was just, a, you know, it was like a minute or 45 seconds or something from his podcast. And I, I found it to be obnoxious. I, and I, I guess I don't see what the point of complaining about Mystic's coverage would be necessarily. But I, I don't make those decisions about the front page. And if you ask me, it's a hard thing to judge because clearly – I don't think it's insulting for me to say a lot more people watch the Nats game in person, a lot more people watch it on television, and I'm sure if you ask our readers, a lot more people would say they care about the Nats than the Mystics. 
But, like, at some level, we have to make choices about what we think is important and balance that with sort of the metrics of reader interest. And, I mean, if I if I go through the arguments on both sides and you say the best player in the WNBA, who is the league MVP for one of the best teams in the history of the league probably, um, which was two wins away from the first title in a 21-year franchise history that was mostly bad – and she has a dramatic injury, and the series gets tied at one, and they're both now two wins away from a title. I, I mean, that's clearly newsworthy. I I don't see anyone who could argue against that. And if we gave it a little extra nudge, maybe more than um, attendance or TV ratings would suggest, I, like, I guess, what's the harm? Do you know what I mean? That That's a league that needs media attention to survive, I think, and it probably hasn't gotten as much as it deserves at various points. And if we're giving it a little bit of a bonus right now because of, you know, this this great team going on a potentially title run, I, I guess I don't see why you would object to that. Like, I, we didn't cut back on our NAS coverage at all. We had a ton of NAS coverage. We were publishing stuff through, like, 4.30 in the morning when our editor finally went to bed. We had, I think, six people at the park plus more working away from the park. It's not like we were, you know, we're not taking away from the baseball team to also cover the basketball team. So, I kind of have mixed feelings about it a little bit because when I used to write more regularly for the internet, I would see how many people would click on my mystic stories, and it was often like very, very, very depressingly low. But I, is that ever going to change? If it ever is going to change, you would think that we would want to be sort of at the forefront of that. And I just think back, you know, in the very, very early days of the internet, we weren't probably as aggressive covering the caps online as we could have, and a, a lot of caps bloggers kind of sprung up to take our place and I don't know that we ever totally recovered online and and I think that I would rather be more aggressive covering sports that aren't super big time right now with the hope that we would be in the right place in the future I guess yeah and I think that the Washington Post is very progressive when it comes to uh, coverage of all different types of sports um, especially the WNBA uh, you know I think that you know when the WBA commissioner she spoke uh, in a press conference before game 1 of the WNBA finals and she commented on you know the Washington Post coverage of uh the WNBA Ava Wallace has done a fantastic job as a beat reporter uh Jean Wang who has done a, a fantastic job you know Candace Buckner's even down there so you you know the Washington Post is cares about um you know being in the right place at the right time and I think that there's a tweet that you had earlier where I think you said uh, it's not about page views or attendance, it's about uh, editorial judgment. And, you know, I, I tend to agree with that, where, you know, it, it may be that it's not the most uh, wanted thing from what the consumers want, but at the same time, it's your job as an editor to inform the readers of, of, of new, new things in the, that are going on in the news and to, you know, educate them and to maybe, you know, put people onto a new sport that they might not uh, – that they might not know about. Because, like you said, Elena Deladon is the, the, the reigning league MVP right now. She played on the Mystics, who were statistically one of the best teams in WNBA history uh, this year. And so they, they deserve, you know, top-notch coverage because they're a top-notch basketball team. Yeah, I think it is a little complicated, though. And, I mean, I don't disagree with anything you just said, but what if, like, you know, what if the Washington Go-Go were in the finals of the G League? I you know, I would there be a similar level of interest? Would we cover it similarly? Like, probably we wouldn't. Uh, would the interest be similar? I don't know. Maybe it would be. What about, like, the Washington Spirit, who, you know, don't really have a full-time home and have bounced around, but when they get when they get down at Audi Field, they have huge crowds sometimes. But, you know, if they were in the, 
their league final. Would we put it above the fold over a NAS playoff game? I'm, I'm not sure. Like, I I don't really know how to decide these things. And when I say editorial judgment, I, I believe that to be true, but it's so subjective. And you might put 10 editors in a room and they might have 10 different opinions. So that's, I mean, it's not just as easy as saying, like, you know, we're just going to decide because it's, even for us, we might have a difference of opinion. So I guess it's complicated. I guess I... I come back to what I said to a couple people um, in, in tweets and in texts. Is I, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna err on this one, I would rather err on the side of being more inclusive to more sports than than less. I guess that's what I would think. If I wanted to look back on this ten years from now, I think I would rather say I gave more attention to more sports than I should have, rather than I gave less. You know. Yeah, and I think that it, it is obviously very subjective, but one thing I've even come to realize in, in the content production game, you literally cannot make everyone happy. So the best you can do is put out the best work and, you know, just, just live with the decisions that you've made. So, And, and I, I agree because, you know, I happened to be at the Mystics game yesterday. And, uh, you know, I was there. Uh, Clinton Yates was there. And Clinton is the biggest baseball fan that I know. Yeah. And he was at the Mystics game yesterday. So, you know, that, that I think that that says a lot about what that means for this town and how much the interest really is driving up into the Washington Mystics. Yeah, I mean, it's higher than it was before, and it's not close to being the same as it is for some of the other teams in town. But, you know, I, I think we probably make a mistake by ex- making our expectations too big. Like, I thought when Deladon arrived here, I thought it would be transformative, and I thought that interest would – double or triple or quadruple or something. And I, I think that my expectations were totally out of whack with that. But the interest is more now than it was before she got here. And if they win the title and are good again next year, the interest will keep going up. I, You know, whether you can get people interested in a bad Mystics team, I'm not totally sure. But, like, I, people didn't used to think that the Cavs would have anything near the support that they do now, but it's because they were consistently good for a super long period of time and it was an entertaining product and they liked it. And so... If the Mystics are are competitive and entertaining, then you build a fan base that wasn't there before, and then maybe it sustains. Yeah, and, you know, I think that it it is something that I think it it takes a while to be able to build. It's not going to happen overnight. And so I think that, um, you know, sustained success will definitely contribute to, uh, you know, the Mystics increasing their fan base. And so one of the things that you mentioned, you know, you said uh, if they win the title this year, I think that, that if is a, a lot bigger uh, today than it was, uh, you know, yesterday morning before the game because of the Elena Deladon injury. So how, how much of an impact do you think that, you know, that is going to have? Or, or first, you know, let's talk about the report that has come out. They said that she ha- she possibly has a herniated disc and uh, she's going to, you know, get more examination and get some treatment. But, you know, this is a, a best of five series, and the series is now tied uh, 1-1. What do you think the chances of, the Mystics winning the championship are in the possibility that uh, Deladon is not able to return, or even if she does return, is in a limited capacity. Yeah, well, first of all, you would assume it's a massive break for them that there's this bizarre four-day window of no games, which, I mean, I, when we saw the schedule before it started, I was like, how in the world are you going to play Sunday and then Tuesday and then not again until Sunday? It didn't seem to make a lot of sense, but it's been a, I mean, it could be a huge, huge advantage for the Mystics if if she's able to get back out there. I, I mean, I don't think it's – I'd be totally speculating if I was going to guess about when she was going to play again. But certainly the fact that she left the game and was ruled out as quickly as she was and the way Tebow talked about it and the way she looked on the floor, it it seemed pretty serious, I guess, to me. 
yeah. For someone I, who has I would a, agree. a history of, of back issues, um, I don't know. I, I I have no idea what her availability will be as to the question about how much it impacts the Mystics. I mean, I, you can't pos- you, you know this team better than I do, but I don't think you could overstate how important she is. I mean, she had a she had a historic season, and if I'm not mistaken, the team didn't win a single game without her on the floor, right? I think they were like 0 and 4 or 0 and 5 or something like that when she didn't play. Yeah, um, yeah. And last night, I, I mean, they made a pretty gutty comeback in the second half, but it was they always sort of felt like they were a little bit behind or like a little bit of underdog. They didn't, they just didn't seem to be that kind of smooth, dominant offensive machine that they were so much of the year. Um, so I, that's the memory that's in my mind. And it would be hard for me to be super optimistic about them winning the series. If she doesn't play, I, again, you know, the team better than me, but I, my guess would be that they lose the series if she doesn't play. Yeah, I, I think that if, if I uh, was a betting man, I, I would say that the odds would be against them if Deladon is not going to return and play this series. But if, if you know, the Mystics were to be able to pull out two victories over, over the next week and a half, I would not be, like, totally shocked by that either because, I mean, as we have both mentioned, like, this has been one of the best uh, statistical teams in the history of the WNBA. You know, they've had, I think, with the fourth, the fourth highest uh, point differential in the history of the league, like, they, they, I mean, they were literally dominating teams all season. And even though they did not win a single game without Deladon in the lineup, they, I think they established a, a, a bit of depth that really other teams do not have. And I think that when, when it comes down to it, Emma Mieseman has really stepped up and been a, a, a sort of a playoff hero for the Mystics. And it, quiet as it's kept, she actually uh, shot a 40 50, 90 uh, during the season as well, but she didn't receive the uh, the recognition for it because she, she didn't hit the, the benchmark uh, for for the amount of shots because she missed time uh, playing with the Belgian uh, national team. But I mean, Emma Mieseman has been, you know, I, I think that it, it, it's a fair assessment to say that she might have been the best player for the Mystics in this playoff run that they've had. You know, in the first series against the Aces, and and you know, and especially uh, yesterday's game. Um, against the Sun, so I don't I don't think that it, it's outside the realm of possibility, but I do think the odds are stacked against them, which which is something that we neither one of us could say, you know, a few days ago when it looked like you know this team was sh- uh, surely headed to a victory parade. Yeah, we thought. I mean, we were talking in the office just for like planning purposes about the possibility of a sweep and of them winning the title on Sunday, um, on the same day that the Nats would be playing a game three against the Dodgers, which is going to happen game three against the Dodgers, but it's not going to be a sweep for the Mystics. I, um, I, mean, I think what everyone said yesterday, in addition to all the obvious things about Deladon, is how important she is rebounding and, and playing defense and what a change that's been from earlier in her career. But I think that it's not going to get mentioned as much, but that's that's something that I think was a huge factor yesterday in the Sun scored what they ninety ninety nine points or something like that. The starters scored like ninety points, so they're gonna have to replace her on both ends. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, ladies, she she is definitely uh, uh, one of the players on the Mystics who has more size. And you know, the the Mystics they were out rebounded forty one to twenty seven yesterday. I mean, and and, and John Quill Jones, she I mean, she looked like you know Will Chamberlain against the Mystics yesterday. Yep. You know, she had thirty two points and eighteen rebounds. Yep. Like that, the, the performance, I mean, she was literally unstoppable. Even if her teammates missed, she was getting the offensive rebound and an easy putback. 
So, you know, the, the mystics definitely uh, have a, 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 a hill to climb in front of them. Um, but I think that we have to talk about one of the reasons why I believe the mystics were able to have the, the great season that they had this year was because of the fact that they opened up uh, a new arena, this is their inaugural season, playing in the uh, the ESA down uh, on the old St. Elizabeth campus in Congress Heights. And so I think that that made a real difference for them to play in a more intimate size arena and for that setting to be, you know, their home court, something that they can call their own. And, you know, they have the, the, the state-of-the-art uh, training facility that they share with the uh, Washington Wizards. Uh, can you talk about what, what it has meant for – uh, the, the the mystics and you know for the wizards both that 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 Ted Leonsis, uh, uh collaborated with Mario Bowser and uh, Events DC and and putting that arena in Southeast and helping to try to build up some of the development in that area. Yeah, I mean you honestly you would probably know more than me because you've probably spent a lot more time there certainly with uh, the mystics but with the wizards too. I you know I kind of don't guard as much anymore, but I read what people say. Obviously. What they say is it benefits all parties, benefits, I think, the Mystics probably most obviously for the home court advantage factor for the locker rooms and the training facilities for being able to kind of share a space with a NBA team and, and sort of be integrated more completely into the NBA organization. You know, the the Wizards, I, I'm sure that there's some guys on the team who initially were a little bit leery of having to Drive to Southeast, yeah. Yeah, probably. You know, it's it's not as convenient a location. Certainly, like, when they send, when they used to sign um, guys to, like, 10-day contracts, they would stay in those nice hotels right around Verizon Center or Capital One Arena. And, you know, that's kind of a different dynamic now. Um, but I, I think there's obviously benefits to having a nicer facility. If that's the place where you're going to get a nicer practice facility, then that's where you go. And as, as far as the neighborhood, I mean – you know, it's going to be an interesting gentrification story, and we'll see what it's like 10 years from now. There's probably some good and some bad um, from what's going on there right now. I know that I've been bugging my wife that we should buy a condo there as, like, a rental property because it just feels inevitable to me that that neighborhood – I mean, it's already starting, but it just feels inevitable that that neighborhood's going to be unrecognizable 10 years from now. Um, and we've gone to games there. We've gone to go-go games, and I guess we didn't go to a Mystics game, but we've been to a, a couple of go-go games, and – I mean, it's just it's just you know part of things that are happening all over the city, from what happened with the United Stadium to Nats Park to there's just like a, a crazy energy that can come along with these sporting arenas and the development that comes along with them. And you know, there's like subsidies involved and choices about. And I'm not an expert in any of these questions really, but it it makes me kind of feel good to go to a sporting event and see that kind of energy in a place that might not have had something like that a few years ago. Yeah, no, I agree. And like, I have spent a fair amount of time uh, down at the at the ESA, whether it be for Wizards practice or Go-Go games or Mystics games. And, you know, I enjoy I, – I live in the city. I metro to uh, literally every time I go down there. And so, you know, I think that it, the, the experience is – is something and like, like you said, like I I see the development and I see where this is going to go ten years from now, yeah. and you know it, it feels good to be a part of it. It feels good to you know be down there and to and and to you know try to to help lead the way and 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 you know making this change in the city. So when you look at 
the the way the arena is set up, you know, obviously they have, you know, they're building apartment buildings across the way, and, you know, there will be retail space below those apartments, and, you know, there it will be a place for, you know, and, and a part of town where they where they need stuff like that. And I am, am one, I'm am, am a fan of it, and I enjoy going down there. I think that, you know, I think Mario Bowser, you know, she gets a bad rep a lot of times for, you know, lots of different things. But I think when it comes to what she's done with events DC and other different things, when it comes to creatives and the art in DC, I think that, that she's very forward thinking and that for Ted Leonsis to be able to partner up with her on this is, you know, it, it, it's very forward thinking. I think it'll be very beneficial for all of Monumental Basketball. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that there are downsides. So, um, and I'm, you know, there's going to be people who probably can't afford to live in that neighborhood at some point. And, you know, if, I remember what it was like going to Nats Park when it was a construction site, and it sure looks a lot nicer now, but there's also times when I'm down there seeing, like, the $13 cocktails or the $16 cocktails or whatever it is, and it's sometimes doesn't feel like the same place that I moved to in, in 1998. And so, I, I mean, obviously you don't want places to be run down and decrepit, but I, I think there's probably downsides to some of this too. Yeah, but I, for the organization, it seems like a good thing. Yeah, and I think that there is a happy medium to be had on all fronts. So, you know, there there we we can have, you know, nice buildings and also affordable cocktails. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, enough with affordable housing. I want affordable cocktails. That's hey, that's <laughs> I I I'm I'm with you right there. This is a message that I can get behind. Yeah. So, um th- I mean, this is the Locked On Wizards podcast. I have to leave with a little bit of Wizards talk. Yeah. Um what what do you think about the the team heading into this season? I think that it was a, it's a different narrative uh, you know, than years past, where I think this is the first year within the last five years at least that there is no expectation whatsoever for the team coming yeah. into the season. You know, at least for at least even last year, you know, before the wheels fell off, you know, they were still talking about, well, you know, we could, if things break right, we can get to the conference finals. And, you know, that was still a dream last year. But, yeah. you know, now I feel like the narrative has changed. There was not a national media member in sight for Wizards Media Day. You know, the the, the complete feel around this team is different. And I think we, we have to start with Bradley Bill, who, you know, has this contract extension hanging out there. And, you know, anybody who's smart knows anything about sports, you know, knows that there's a very low percentage chance that he takes that. How do you feel about the, the, the Wizards coming into this season and, and just where, 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 where the trajectory seems to be going? Yeah, it's interesting. For a lot of years, I think people were saying, I kind of feel sorry for John Wall. He's like spending the prime of his career with a Wizards team that can't really get over the hump and you know he's he lived through so many bad seasons with them and and now the good seasons aren't maybe as good as we imagined they were going to be and they needed to get him more help and all these things and I don't know that I ever felt as bad for Wall as I do for Beal going into this season because after what he did last year and his like obvious place in the NBA landscape to be buried on such a miserable roster for this year i it just feels like a waste of him doesn't it i mean I, yeah no i mean i agree i think that you know I, I mean bill is saying all of the right things in public about you know him wanting to be here and i do honestly like haven't spent a, a fair bit amount of time around brad i take him for face value that i do you know, too he's interested in being here I but do too. You know, i think that you know this year right here is very important as far as him understanding the the trajectory of the franchise and so I don't think that – I think that Tommy Shepard – I think that they're – Tommy Shepard and Bradley Bill, I think that they're married for this year at least. 
And so I don't think that there's going to be a situation where, you know, they'll try to trade Bill during the middle of the season unless they get some package that comes in that's so ridiculous because of whatever happens throughout the league. But I, I wouldn't bet on it. I, I'd say that this year is more like a trial period, a honeymoon stage, if you will. And, you know, if, if at the end of this year, you know, he can – honestly, if Brad can see a little bit of growth and development, maybe he will want to stick around. Maybe Rui, you know, will turn out to be the next Kawhi Leonard. You know, maybe that will happen. I think that there's a, a realm, a world where, you know, maybe they won't make the playoffs, but they could come out and win, you know, 35 games and surprise some people. And Brad will think, you know, maybe we'll get John back and we can do this thing. But there's also a world where, you know, they completely tank and they're one of the worst teams in the league. And, you know, he's going to respectfully say all the right things through the season. And then at the end of the year, he's probably going to request a trade with one year left on his deal. So, I mean, how, how do you see this thing shaking out? Just yeah, from but I mean, those two different perspectives. Yeah, I think that when you – first of all, the Kawhi Leonard thing, God bless you. But when you talk I, about – I, I didn't say it. Tonsi Billups said that on the night of the draft. I didn't just pull yeah. it out of there. When you say, like, the – kind of the upside is, like, maybe they surprise everyone and get to 35 wins. That's, I mean, we, we've gone through a bunch of media days in a row. We're just a couple of days past this media day where it was always, like, conference finals, conference finals, 50 wins, 50 wins, conference finals. And now it's like maybe they get to 35 wins and, and kind of surprise people. And it just feels like they've slouched so aggressively back to the bad old days. And it feels like... I mean, I I know John Wall will work hard, but is is there anyone, including Bradley Beal, who doesn't start to worry if this costing him his speed and what that would mean for what that would mean for his game? I, I it's it's just it's hard to imagine the upside right now. And I mean, I know you do this not for a living, but I know you do this for. I mean, I, this is like part of your your life. I understand that, but I feel like the first game of the year. I, it's going to be hard to know what I'm turning on the TV to watch. Do you know what I mean? I, yeah. I and, and I, you know, I'm happy for the Wizards that they think they're going to be really popular in Japan now. That's cool, but that doesn't do a lot <laughs> for their fan base. You know, I, I I don't know that the fan base is quite as excited about the rookie as the organization is, and I don't know that the organization's excitement about building interest in Asia really translates to the fan base. So I, it, it's going to be a I think it's going to be a tough year. I think it's going to be a tough year for maintaining interest. And maybe I'm too pessimistic right now, but it just feels like there's going to be nights where even Wizards fans are like, why do I want to turn the TV on? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm right there with you just because, I mean, I've been going to, the, you know, the first few days of training camp. And, you know, when we try to ask, you know, Scott Brooks, you know, who's, you know, and the, the, what the rotation might be looking like, you know, Scott Brooks is having a hard time even remember all of the players who are injured right now. You know, there's yeah. there's, there's literally a, a full, you know, roster of, of people, you know, a, a full starting five of people who are sitting on the sidelines who are not practicing right now. And yeah, it's not a starting five that was, that was going to be that exciting to begin with, and now it's a starting five that's decimated by injury, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I think that um, when, when you look at the team, you, you, you have to look at uh, what, what happened, why it took so long for – uh, Ted Leonsis to get into this whole monumental basketball uh, organizational restructuring that he did. So, you know, essentially, uh, I, I'm going to give very much credit. I'm going to give credit to Adam Rubin here, Liddell's place on Twitter. He said, uh, Ernie must have been the hardest working man uh, in, in, in sports business because he needed 20 people to fill <laughs> his job. 
So it's like, you know, I mean, that, that's, a, that's a very interesting dynamic. Like, like the Wizards for years seem to be uh, one of the, the thinnest uh, organizations in sports. And now all of a sudden, like, literally, you know, I felt like the, the like, like Tim Leontes let, he waited until the wheels fell off until he decided, you know what, let me, let me go ahead and call AAA real quick. And so he didn't just call AAA. He called AAA. He called, you know, the local guy. He called, he called yeah. 30 other people to yeah. come in and try to look at this car that's broken down. And so, you know, I think that the whole monumental basketball structure is very interesting. What, what were your initial impressions from, you know, the, the big to-do, the big press conference from this summer, and with not only introducing Tommy Shepard as the GM replacing uh, Ernie Grunfeld, but, you know, having, you know, a, a full army of people uh, who are there to provide resources for him? I mean, I guess I'm a little skeptical, and I like Tommy, and I'm happy for him, and I'm sure you like him and are happy for him. Um, it's, I'm just a little skeptical of the whole thing. I'm skeptical of the idea. I know it worked out for the Caps, but I'm skeptical of the idea of, of hiring the lieutenant for the guy whose project didn't work. Um, I'm skeptical that asking 75 people and hiring 38 people is – I mean, it, do, it just doesn't seem like it's that complicated. That the, the biggest key to doing this thing right is to get good players. And I don't know how many people it takes to get good players, but like. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to this Locked On podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today.